Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 295 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Balance for Gold, an interview with Axel Rolands. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. This podcast episode is powerful in so many ways. Axel provides specific ways he had to bring balance to his life in order to heal from Lyme disease. He was an extreme adrenaline junkie who was always on the go until they crashed from Lyme disease. He fought for a proper diagnosis after getting misdiagnosed and continuing to decline. And once diagnosed, he refused to accept the fact that he couldn't get better. He kept fighting and trying new things until ultimately he went from being bed bound and debilitated to now working six days a week, some days 10 to 12 hours a day. We're really excited to share Axel's story with you. So without further ado, Axel Rolands. Hey, Axel Rolands, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Good morning. Yes, good morning, and thank you for taking time out of your really busy schedule uh, as an athlete and an entrepreneur to join us on the podcast. So let's, why don't we start with that? Talk to us a little bit about your career as an athlete and your career as an entrepreneur. Um, yeah, I've been born in a family that did sports always for uh, like motocross. Um, so I started at a very young age to ride with bikes, um, together with my brother, who is a bit older and it was, uh, really well in the sport. So I always followed him around in the world and, uh, tried to ride my bike as much as possible. Um, until, yeah, you know what happened. And, um, I was doing this really, uh, with a smile on my face and everything was going perfect. And from an entrepreneurship side, I was, um, I was also born in a family that is really entrepreneurial. So, yeah, my dad has a big company. Um, so I was always looking up to him, what he was doing, uh, how he was working so much. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's got the entrepreneurial side of me. Um, I started a food supplement company uh, a couple of years ago. And yeah, that's also growing really well. So, yeah. Um, I'm always high performance um, until the disease got along. So, Axel, talk to us a little bit more about your food supplement company. What's the name of the company, and uh, and and how did you how did you come to uh, build this company? Um, actually, um, the name is for gold um, because we are always looking for uh, gold. We are not settling for silver, and um, I wanted some high quality supplements on the market. And that's why we came up to it. Um, I do this with two good friends of mine. One is a pro athlete, a really well-known cyclist. And the other one is a really good friend of mine who got diagnosed with Crohn's disease and also had uh, big problems with his gut. And yeah, we, we wanted to do something for the world and, and for, for top athletes to get good supplements for good gut health with, uh, yeah, with all the necessary things you need uh, to perform on a high level. So actually, your English is uh, very proper, so folks know that you're not a New Yorker for sure. So why don't you share with us where you're calling in from today and where do you live? Um, I'm from Belgium um, originally, and um, yeah, I'm still living here. Uh, it's not the goal to stay here because I don't think Belgium has a nice future for me. That comes with, um, with the air and the sun. We don't have so much Sundays like... Um, like you have in the south of Europe, um, for example, Portugal, where I stayed for almost one year um, last year to get my healing up for a, for a top notch. Um, so, yeah, but uh, yeah, Belgium is stressful. 
people are stressful, uh, jobs are stressful, and I'm looking more to go south and uh, and get a little bit more of a relaxing life. So now, talk to us about what it was like to grow up in Belgium. You are, you, of course, you're a child uh, of of a um, of a business professional, uh, and so talk to us what it was like uh, during your childhood in Belgium. Uh, yeah, of course was going to school every day and uh, after school I was uh, riding in the forest with my little uh, BMX bike uh, with our little uh, pit bikes we were yeah running around biking uh, yeah riding with the bikes uh, yeah every day was one big party I was living um, in a in a yeah quite a big place with a little forest where we could ride every day and yeah so yeah so you you began your you began your your early athletic life first as a as a cyclist right a BMX cyclist and then you graduated and you began you began to uh, to um, use uh, motorcycles and motocross became a passion. So talk to us about how you made that transition from BMX to ultimately motocross. Um, so yeah, I was not uh, doing anything professional or something, but I was just riding a lot of uh, motocross when I was young um so yeah this was doing me well I, I i really loved it it was not uh professional it was just yeah for fun uh but then late later on when i um when i had like uh i was like 11 12 years old it got uh yeah really much fun i was doing more competition because my brother was racing in uh in the rope category so uh yeah i started to race more and more only just for fun then I stopped school when I was 17 because I could not uh, focus well in school. Now I know why, before I didn't. Um, and yeah, um, then I started to do motocross on a bit of a higher level, but just in Belgium. That was also going really well um, until I got sick. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit about uh, first your um, early life as a BMX enthusiast, and then ultimately we'll talk about graduating into the BMX world and uh, and working as a professional athlete. Now, you said you were spending a lot of time in the forest when you were riding your BMX bikes, and I'm I'm assuming when you were riding your BMX bikes as a as a child, um, you used some safety equipment. You were you wearing helmets? Were you wearing elbow pads? Were you wearing knee pads? Uh, what kinds of things were you doing to keep yourself safe? as a BMX athlete? Uh, we were wearing nothing, just our little shoes and that's it. Uh, we were playing in the forest as little kids. So uh, I have a lot of broken bones, even though I'm 28, I have, uh, I think 21 broken bones. So uh, yeah, I can feel it when it's, uh, when it's cold in the morning. All right, so Axel, I'm assuming since you weren't taking many precautions in your cycling and then ultimately motocross career, Sounds to me you probably weren't taking many precautions to protect yourself from ticks and tick diseases when you were spending so much time in the forest. Am I correct in my assumption or were you kind of uh, taking risks on the cycling but protecting yourself from coming in contact with ticks and tick diseases? Um, of course, because I, I, was, I was wearing nothing like protection for ticks and I was also not aware of it because in, we are coming from a place in Belgium where there's a lot of forests and it's very common to get a tick bite. And with the standard things that they say is just take the tick off and you don't get the red circle. It's nothing bad. So uh, you don't need to worry about it. So probably I had some tick bites when I was younger. Um, yeah, I had, I had some because I discussed this uh, with my parents when I got uh, diagnosed. But um, yeah, 
we were not protecting it. We were not looking after it. We didn't put sprays on. Uh, we were just out there having fun and yeah, be, be not so careful. So let's talk about ticks in Belgium. So you said that you are aware that there are ticks. You were aware that you were bitten by ticks. Um, what did you learn either in the educational system or from your parents about ticks? Um, nothing really much. So we have in, in Belgium at school, you get like the little um, uh, textbooks, like you have to be careful with the sun. Don't get too much in the sun. You get all these kind of things in school. But from a tick bite, they just said, take it off. And that's it. When you go on camp with school, uh, you have like three or four kids in a full camp that get a tick bite, but yeah, they just take it out and they don't worry about it. Uh, only later on when you get sick, they, uh, they are worrying about it. But then it's, yeah, most of the time not related with the tick for the doctor. So, yeah. So let's talk about that. Do, do, you, do you remember the first time you were bitten by a tick? And what was that no. experience like? Uh, I can't remember because I was probably too small. Um, I remember I had one in the back of my head, uh, in my hair, that uh, that I was putting out. And I was like, what, what is this? And then we found out it was a tick. But also like, yeah, same story, no red circle. So yeah, no worries. So yeah. So on all the different occasions when you were bitten by a tick, other than taking off the tick, was there any uh, visits to doctors? Was there any, any type of intervention? Or was just take it off and go back to engaging in your reckless biking and cycling activities. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly how it went. <laughs> okay. So now let's talk about how your career progressed, uh, you know, and when you first started to feel your symptoms. So you, you, you had this vision of becoming a professional athlete. You were, you know, you were following in the trail that your brother had blazed, who was, your brother was having a lot of success in this industry. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, 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 you're following in that trail. And, 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 and how was that going for you? You did, you did foreshadow for us that you had, you were having a lot of success at a, at a very young person. So talk to us about those successes and how you went from being a bicyclist to a, to a motocross athlete to ultimately, um, you know, having a, a, a great level of success at a very young age prior to getting sick. So um, it's, it's difficult to explain, but I was... Um... I only started to take it serious when I was 17, 18 years old, when I stopped school, because I was always running around with friends. And uh, it was only at that time that I started to train physically, um, doing cycling, running, uh, doing all these kind of things. And I was getting fit. And the first time I was getting fit in my life, I was feeling like, hey, maybe this can do something for me. And I was getting better, like race after race. I was feeling that, hey, uh, if I train hard and I focus, um, I was not getting out too much, like not too much parties and focus on what I did. Um, yeah, it really helped me out. So, um, yeah. Then I had the vision to ride in uh, European championships. Um, but, like, I didn't have so much luck. I had really much broken bones, always on the, on the, on the wrong timing. Um, so I always had to come back. I was uh, a bad knee, so surgery, four months off. Then a broken thumb, six months off. And so... It was always uh, something that, that went on that took me a bit out of it. Um, and yeah, I had to let it go. Um, when in 2016, I, I broke my neck. Um, so yeah, since then also the, the Lyme disease started. And um, yeah, I got really much the, the feeling I had. I did something wrong with my body because I, of course I, I broke my neck. 
And also two years before I broke my uh, tailbone with uh, four vertebras. So I was feeling it, it was not right. And uh, yeah, also there, I've, I probably got the, the, the line. So Axel, uh, you know, and, and I know our listeners are already cringing because they can see this train coming at them, you know, well, you know, while they're listening to your story, right? Because we have this, uh, we have this kid who is, uh, you know, certainly following in the in the footsteps of his brothers, but uh, but there's a lot of recklessness going on here. I mean, you're certainly not exercising a way that serves you. You're rigorously exercising. You're riding on motocross, um, you know, in, in motocross events at a, you know at, a, at an international level. You're getting hurt on a regular basis, breaking bones, having surgeries. You're having all this go on. Oh, and by the way, you are being bitten by ticks on a pretty regular basis during your childhood, and all of this comes together, and you crash, right? And the yeah. and and and. So first, talk to us about how your symptoms began to develop. Now, when you were thinking back. When did the symptoms begin to develop and how were the early symptoms affecting you? Um, so to, to explain this quite simple, in 2014, my brother had a crash and uh, he went into a wheelchair. So I was a little bit done with the motocross side of things because yeah, of course, when you see a brother in a wheelchair, it's just, this is mentally really tough. Um, so I decided to go back to some mountain biking and cycling because I needed some time off. But after six months, of course, I could not, yeah let the bike stand there. So I started to ride uh, enduro again. So it's also like with motocross bike. And I started again to train a bit and to, yeah, to become a little bit, little bit better in this sport. Um, and then September, 2016, had a really bad, uh, bad crash and I broke my neck. And I was laying there on the floor and I was thinking, this is exactly the same like my brother. I will be paralyzed for the rest of my life and it will be done with me. This is uh, end of the story. But I was really lucky. I broke my neck. They could uh, fix it with an operation. And normally I would not have too much damage afterwards. Problem was, of course, um, I had really much, uh, I had nerve pain. So I, I had so many symptoms that, uh, that I could not place. And always when I went to the doctor, it's, yeah, it's because of your neck injury. You broke your neck, you need to take some time off. You have a big trauma, uh, your hands are sleeping, it's normal, we, we take this uh, day by day. So we will see what happens in the future. But uh, after uh, all these weeks, my symptoms got worse and worse and worse. Because the time I had the crash, they had to give me um, lots of medications um, for the pain, because of course I had lots of pain, I have lots of uh, headaches, I have lots of muscles who are really tensioned in my neck area uh, so my stomach lining was completely damaged uh, my trencha was completely damaged from the from the crash so everything was uh was really difficult at the time for the for the neck side of things and my my i got my first um anxiety and, and panic attack around four or five months after this uh crash so i was thinking yeah it's maybe mentally that i'm that i'm trained after Two years after my brother's crash, I had my crash, and it's a big trauma mentally, also for the family. Um, maybe you have the mental side of things are not right. And my doctor also said this: maybe you need to work on this. So I, I went to see for a psychologue. I, I went speaking with her two times a week. Uh, we found out that there were things inside me that, of course, were stressful. But why I had these panic attacks? Why I was feeling more and more down? Why I was feeling so? 
um, that no energy, pain, uh, all the symptoms that now I know that were Lyme disease, but then I didn't. So yeah, there we 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 had to start uh, like. Um, of course, I was thinking it's it's the neck. I was not thinking about Lyme disease. I was thinking this is the neck injury that is uh, making me sick. So I was thinking we have to get through this. I started riding bikes again and I was feeling tired, but we have to keep going because I had also my business that was running and that was going full gas. So I was still high performing. I was doing 12 hours day, days of work and I went cycling two hours in the evening. So I was I was always on a high level for myself. I need to be focused, uh, eat healthy and, and keep doing what you're doing. But I was always getting more and more bad. Um, and it was only in 2018 that um, I really like crashed for the first time that I could. Every time I went training, I, I, I go worse. Normally, yeah, you, you train, you recover and you can go longer two days after. And I was only getting worse. So from there on, we found... Uh, yeah, I did a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, seeing doctors. And it was only in 2020 when we found out that I had Lyme disease. So it was a, yeah, so for, let's for a second, four year long journey. Yeah, so let's let's pause there before we get to your, your diagnosis. And um, when did you begin to suspect that your symptoms were not entirely related to the neck injury? Because your doctors are focusing on neck injury. And, and of course, that makes perfect sense because... It's a horrific injury, and it could have been it could have been uh, something that caused you to suffer from paraplegia. So, yeah, it was it was it was a it was a horrific accident. It was a horrific injury. But when did you start to think my doctors are focusing too much on the neck injury? There's something else going on here. It was about yeah, 2018 summer, so two years and a half late, um, because um, yeah, I don't know how to explain this, but I was also thinking it was the neck because of course um yeah it was big and i had some troubles with it but since the summer 2018 um i was feeling symptoms that were totally not related with the neck um, how did you know that how do you know that the symptoms were not what related you mean? to the neck um yeah you have the tiredness and they i was looking it up i was looking on online because yeah you know if you're an entrepreneur you're always doing things yourself so I was not believing my doctor anymore. I was seeing another doctor and another one. And I started to, to get, get the white paper, white uh, sheet of paper and write some things down, all my symptoms, all what, what, what it could be. And I had a list of like 50 things that, that I need to check before I know what I had. All right. So you, so you turned your, your symptoms into a project, right? You were, you were now, you were now writing down a project plan and defining the scope of the problems that you had, right? So that's the, that's the first thing that you did to help you now understand or tease out the symptoms that you would expect to feel from the neck injury versus the symptoms that may not be related to the neck injury. So that's the first step you took. The second thing it sounds like you did is you were pivoting from doctor to doctor. So talk to us about how you made the decision to go from one doctor to the next doctor when you're on the diagnostic um, phase of your journey. Um, at the time, I had a sports doctor because I was doing the athlete side of things. Um, and he was, yeah, I, he took some blood. We found out had some strange values. Yeah, but this is probably related to the neck. You have low testosterone. That's probably because of the trauma. You have high... Uh, high values of another thing. So he was always looking for, okay, it's from the neck injury that we were thinking. And from there we started. Then I got um, 
really bad uh, stomach problems. Okay, so we go for a, for a, to look in the stomach. Then we go to look in the gut. We go, so we did a lot of testing and, and um, sugar tests, all this kind of stuff to, to find out yeah, where the problem was. And every time we saw something was wrong, but we could not uh, put the finger on the wound. Like, this is it. So, Axel, one of the advantages that athletes have when they're about to go through a Lyme disease journey is that they understand the importance of teams and coaching, right? We, we interviewed uh, a former professional skier named Athena Brownstone um, uh, and uh, Athena Sophocles. And what she, what, what she told us was because she was a professional athlete and because she always had coaches and she always had coaching, she understood the value of building teams and she then built a team to help her through this challenge. So did you have that same experience as a, as a professional athlete where you had, you really valued coaching and you really valued building teams? And does that help you now on this phase of your journey? Um, that's exactly what I did as well. So um, with, with writing everything down on a paper, I, I got um, to my doctor and I said, listen, um, I, want, I want a second opinion because I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm seeing other doctors, but I want a second opinion. So I'm going to another doctor and, and let him overview everything I, I write down. So I went to another doctor that I know uh, from a friend uh, and he, I explained everything to him. And he said, the good thing is we can start again from a new sheet of paper. We, we write everything down again and we can, we, can, we can look at the things you already test, but we can test some other stuff. So he was like, he, he heard my story from another side because the other doctor knew me for already 10 years. So he was more into, of course, it's the trauma, it's the neck, it's the, all these kind of things that came together. And the other doctor was more, I was fresh, I was new for him. So he could look at another side of the, of the paper. And um, yeah, that's, then, then at that time, I built a team around myself. I got uh, the physio, um, uh, my doctor, uh, my nutrition coach. I got everyone together. Um, like, okay, uh, we have these symptoms. What can it be? Can it be related? But what's your idea about it? Um, my parents, of course, because also the financial side of things wasn't interesting. Um, so we got all these uh, people together and, and I was the one making the decision what we are going to do because I was still um, fresh enough in my head at the time to decide what I had to do. And yeah, it was a two year journey uh, finding out uh, which direction to go. Oh, so Axel, so give us give us again in, in, in some specific detail who's on your team. So you had your first doctor who you had worked with for 10 years. You then yeah. you then hired a second medical doctor who was now looking at your symptoms from a fresh perspective and essentially became a check and balance on the first doctor. You said you yeah. also made sure that your parents were a part of your team because you were cognizant of the importance of having financial support. You had a nutritionist a physical therapist, anybody else on the team that you were working with? You said you were also working with a psychologist or psychiatrist prior to this. Did that, did that professional stay on your team as well? Yeah, she was, of course, in my team because uh, she discussed all these kind of medical, uh, uh, mental problems with my doctors as well to, to see where it, uh, the, the problem could be. And also, and you can't forget this, two of my best friends, um, because they know me really, really well. And I discussed everything with them before I made decisions because they know me, they know how I am. They know what I do, what I decide. So I put them in my team as well. 
Okay, now let's talk about the importance of that social support because unfortunately Lyme disease is a very isolating disease and in many cases people find themselves with no one. But you very intentionally invited people to be a part of this team, including your friends, because you wanted to have a touchstone so that you could, I guess, have some feedback on whether or not your thoughts were accurate or not, right? So talk to us about, about how you made sure that you weren't isolated and how you invited people to be on the team and, and allow them to give you input so that you could get to a good outcome? Uh, the first time I started to feel the anxiety and the panic attacks, um, it was really lonely. And um, one of my friends was with me when I had a really bad uh, panic attack. And uh, he said, oof, this is really sketchy and, and, and not so nice to watch. And he was like, I'm always here to help. You can always call me. And I was like, yeah, but sometimes I know I, I, I'm not so fresh in the head, but I can't explain it to anyone. I cannot speak. I cannot. And I was always speaking. I was it, like, now I'm always speaking. I'm a, I'm a very social guy. So, um, it, and I was, I was not speaking. I was just silent. And I was, I had so much brain fuck at the time that I could not think I could not communicate. It was really difficult. And to get these guys in my team, it was more easy for me because they could see immediately on my face in which, in which state I was to make a decision, yes or no. Can, I, can he make a clear decision or is he too much in the brain fog side of things? And yeah, if, if, they, if they ask me to go uh, for dinner then I, and I said no, they understand. So yeah, they took me on the good route. So now you built your team, but you're still focusing on the trauma related to the neck. How did you and your team ultimately pivot away from the trauma and the injury that you suffered in the motocross accident and finally begin to focus on other things that allowed you to finally get to your Lyme disease diagnosis. Um, so what my second, uh, my, what my new doctor did was uh, he looked at me like also like a project. He said, okay, we're going to find out what's wrong. Um, and he let me do a physical test because he thought I was overtrained because I did lots of physical training. I was training 16 to, to 20 hours a week, cycling, running, uh, all these kind of things. And he was like, maybe you are overtrained. You did too much. And you there is a, uh, a syndrome called overtraining syndrome that if you do too much for a too long time, your body will uh, fight itself. So I did the test in a special university. And uh, it's a cycling test, like uh, to build up um, some, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't come up with the name now. Also the lime brain. Uh, um, what's lactate? Well, lactate lactic acid. La lactic acid in English, yeah. Um, and before I was doing this test, I was yeah, pretty good at it because I was fit. And now I did the lactic acid test. And around uh, what normally is my, my, my point where I get the lactic acid, I was already fully done. And they took all the blood samples. And then I had to wait for three hours and, did, and do another test to see how my body was responding to this um, activity. And I got off the bike the first time. And I had to rest for three hours on a chair in, in, the, in the hallway. And they found me before my second test. I was sleeping on the chair, fully sweating. And I was, I was, yeah, I was just sleeping. And the guy came to me and was like, "Are you okay?" I said, "No, I'm not fine, but okay." We do the second test, so I know what's wrong. And I started pedaling, and it's just 80 watts. That means your, your legs are just going around on the bike. It's just really easy. And my legs were going around, and I could feel myself train. I, I could feel I was almost peeing my pants. I, I, I could not hold it any any longer. I was just completely drained. And 
it, they took my heart rate and it was 160. And I was just making my legs go around, not putting any pressure. So I was feeling, okay, this is not well. Uh, they put a little bit more effort into the test and three minutes later I had to stop. I was throwing up, I was feeling really sick. Um, so what they see is normally your values after a, a exercise, they go up like cortisol, um, all your hormones, everything is changing to recover. And they see that all my, my ashes, they were just like straight lines. There was nothing happening, nothing was happening. So every time I did an exercise, I was going worse. So they immediately gave me a cortisone because they were like, this, this needs to change. And of course, after four days, I was flying. I was flying. You cannot believe it. I was, they gave me the cortisone. And after four days, I could work 12 hours a day again. I could exercise. I had a private gym. I was in the gym. Everything was, was flying. Everything was going like I wanted to. Um, yeah, until three months after. All right. So let's let's talk a little bit about that for a second. So, the, so they were trying to define whether or not you were overtrained. They had come to the conclusion that you were overtrained, right? Now, they talked to you at the time that they had come to the conclusion that you were suffering from overtraining syndrome, that that would have an impact on your immune system. Yeah. So they said... Um, Probably from the trauma in your neck, there is something as uh, I can also not remember the name now. There is something of a little piece uh, that's uh, regulating your uh, hormones and stuff. And they said um, the spinal gland, I think is the name, um, and it's regulating all your hormones. This can be damaged from the neck injury. And that's why you have now all this overtraining syndrome. Um, so when you, give, when you take the cortisol, it will help you. That's what they said. Okay. So... So they're still focusing on the neck as the basis of the, um, of the hormonal dysregulation. Uh, at any time, did, was there a conversation about the possibility that the hormonal dysregulation was caused by something else other than the neck injury? No. Okay. So you, you have all of these classic symptoms starting to, starting to unfold for you and your team. You're going for high level testing, but everybody's still coming back to the neck, right? But, you know, the, the, because a lot of the hormonal dysregulation, of course, is uh, uh, an indicia of Lyme disease. And we, we understand, and we'll talk more about this, the HPA axis and the impact that Lyme disease has on that type of hormonal dysregulation and the impact that it will have on your cortisol levels, right? But they're still, they're still coming to the conclusion, hey, it's the neck injury. So how does this, again, develop where you're moving closer to your Lyme disease diagnosis? Because it sounds so far, everybody just keeps coming back to the neck. Yeah. Um, so yeah, after, of course, after I got these pills, I was feeling really well and I could start doing some exercises again. So mentally I was feeling much more better because training was always a getaway for me to release stress. And I was doing some training again. I was riding with my bike a little bit and, um, yeah, it was only when I really collapsed that we had to do everything again. And that's when they found out I had Lyme disease. Okay, so so another thing that's kind of interesting to me, uh, Axel, is that you know we, we we talk on this podcast about the gym culture, right? And whether or not exercise is going to serve us or it's going to hurt us, right? And we we sometimes talk about this inverted U, where you know you're exercising and you're getting benefit, and then you're 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 ex exercising and and you stop getting a benefit, but it's not hurting you, but then you overexercise and now it starts to hurt you, right? You you get you go through that inverted U uh, scenario, right? You were overtraining, 
You were training to be a professional athlete. You were training so that you could protect your body from the rigors of, 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 of riding in motocross and suffering all these serious injuries that your brother and you and everybody else in that industry are, are suffering, right? You, you take a test. And when you take the test, what your, what your doctors tell you uh, is that, hey, you're suffering from overtraining syndrome, right? They give you cortisol. You go back to training again, right? And you're training at a high level. So did anyone suggest to you that perhaps it was the training that you were doing before you suffered the injury that put you into the syndrome that ultimately made you vulnerable to both injury and then some other things? Or did they not say anything to you and you thought, hey, going back to training is a good thing? Uh, exactly. I was thinking like, okay, we have a solution so we can go back to full gas and in two years I will be flying again. That's what I was thinking. Um, of course, this was also, I wanted to think this and that's also dangerous. I was like, okay, uh, finally I have a, a stamp like, okay, I have a, I have a solution so we can, we can go back to what I want to achieve uh, business-wise, uh, sports, everything. Um, so yeah, it was easy for me to decide, okay, let's go full gas again. But of course this was really, uh, really fast again in the, in the trash can. Right. So you in your head, it was, Hey, all right. I suffered this neck injury. I, I have some hormonal dysregulation. They'll give me hormonal replacement therapy. I go back to being better again. I could do all the things I was doing again. Right. And you go back to doing all the things you were doing again. And of course, what does it do? It causes you to suffer immune, um, you know, further immune disruption, further uh and, and and now you have a crash yeah so yeah i was i was feeling well and and, and so on so i decided to go um on a, on a two-week trip with my girlfriend at the time to ride some uh, motocross bikes in spain and pass by andorra to have some skiing and um yeah you know i was always all in so i was on, on the ski slope on the second day and the first day i was a little bit of I had some air hunger and I was not feeling well, but at the time I had always anxiety and it was, it was normal to me. So I was standing on the ski slope and I was not feeling well. And I was just like, yeah, it, it will be fine. Tomorrow it will be a better day. So I went sleeping, woke up in the morning and I was like, what is this with my body? I need to get through it. I took double the dose of what I could normally take of the cortisol. So my body was on fire and I was on the ski slope. And suddenly it was, and it was done. You cracked. And yeah, fully. I, uh, I did not remember, uh, like uh, half a day. Um, my girlfriend, like put me on the bed in the, in the room and yeah, she was really scared of what was happening because I was shaking and I was, yeah, I could not eat. I was not thinking everything was completely vanished. Everything before what happened was vanished. And yeah, I called my parents. I called a friend and I said, you fly to here. I take a first flight home and we're going we're gonna to do all the tests again. We're going to look for what I had because I was so scared that I was going to die. I had uh, heart palpitations. My heart was going full gas. Uh, I could not breathe. I was, yeah, I, was, I was thinking literally I was going to die. So uh, that was really scary. So I took the next flight home the day after. And um, yeah, we did all the testing again. So Axel, it sounds, it sounds like you had a seizure um, in that moment and, uh, and all, the, all of what you just outlined sound like classic seizure symptoms. Is that what happened? Yeah. 
So now you now you now you're back at square one, right? You had you had gone through this journey with your team. You had come to the conclusion collectively that you were suffering from hormone dysregulation as a result of the neck injury. You 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 supplement with uh, with hormones, and you now find yourself worse off than you ever had been before. You have a seizure. At that time, are you now believing and discussing with your team that there's something else going on here, and it's time for us to uh, look past this? neck injury and look somewhere else? People, um, actually it was, uh, I was so desperate at the time and nobody could understand me that I just put a post out on Instagram, sorry, listen, I don't know what I had. If someone please understand me, if someone please could tell me or send me to another doctor, I don't care what, what the costs are, I don't care where I have to travel to, I need to know what I have because like this I cannot function. I was in my bedroom like uh, for three weeks, I could not really wake up, I was so tired, I could, not, I, could not, I could not do anything and I was so scared of this that I had to reach out to all the people I know and uh, I had a bit of luck that I had uh, a friend who had Lyme disease who got to me through Instagram and said, hey, Axel, please visit this doctor. He's very special, but please visit him. Uh, maybe he can be uh, helpful. Okay, so let's pause there for a second and build that out, Axel. So um, you, had, you had this team of people who you were working with, your parents, your physical therapist, your nutritionist, your doctors, your, your psychotherapist. You had this whole team of people. Uh, and now you said, hey, I have to expand this team. I have to crowdsource my symptoms because we on our team are not successfully diagnosing this. I want to expand to the larger community. And it really gives us now the bright side of social media. We, we always focus on the dark side of social media. And as you know, from our pre-podcast uh, conversation, I'm not a big fan of social media, uh, or I certainly wasn't before I started working with Tick Bootcamp, but you now use this tool effectively and you said hey i'm sick these are my symptoms what do you folks think and someone comes back to you and says you may have lyme disease so yeah what were you what were you thinking about lyme disease did you know anything about it did you think it was possible what did this what did this responsive post tell you that led you to believe that this was a possibility i know uh i know about lyme disease um because the friend uh was actually in 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 my friend group of like close 20 people and i was uh, but i had really much different symptoms than him only the fatigue was was a bit the same um but it was really difficult to 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 reach out uh because i already had two times a lime test before because my doctors were looking also after a lot of things and they were like okay you can have the kissing disease you can have all, all kinds of things but yeah maybe lime but they were doing a standard lime test and of course nothing comes out when you have for already so many years, uh, Lyme disease. Oh, so, you, so Lyme was on the radar while you were going through this diagnostic journey, even though you were largely focusing on the neck where everybody was coming back to the neck injury, you had tested for Lyme disease twice. Talk to us about the first two Lyme disease tests that you had taken and what the doctors were saying to you about why they were testing you uh, for Lyme disease. Um, because I had the fatigue, they were looking at, yeah, maybe it's Lyme disease because they know something about it, but not so much. Um, so we're going to test the whole panel of what you can test for diseases that make you tired. So they test me on the whole panel and yeah, nothing comes out. 
So you're not a Borrelia positive. That's what the answer was. Okay, so no stress, no Lyme. It will be something else. Okay. Now, you, you shared with us earlier that your parents had revealed to you that you had been bitten by ticks several times during your childhood that you didn't recall. When did your parents first begin to share with you that these tick bites were, uh, were a part of your childhood? And were you taking that into account or your team of, 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 of project, you as the project manager, were, you, were your team focusing on that? Um, so what I did, uh, quite uh, the, the same day, I took again a white piece of paper and I, um, I made a timeline of my life with everything that happened, all my broken bones, all my emotional damage, all my uh, physical damage, where I had some big uh, races or whatever, all these kind of things. And I broke a timeline and I said, of, of course, at the neck injuries in there and all these kind of things. But I was like, the, the timeline of the last year is totally different. There is something else going on. I need to look further into this. And uh, I spoke, I asked my parents, like, what do you think? Is, uh, can it be Lyme disease? You, because I never had the red circle on my, on my arm or on my, um, on my head. Yeah, maybe. So we test again. Okay. So now you, now you go to this new, new doctor, right? Your, your friend who had Lyme disease uh, recommended that you go to a Lyme literate medical doctor. Um, if you're comfortable with sharing the name of the doctor that you went to, please do that. And tell us what the experience was like when you went to the Lyme literate medical doctor. So he, he texted me his, his number, please call him, uh, explain you're a friend of mine, and then, then he, will, uh, he will explain to you what kind of tests you have to do. So of course, I made, a, I made a, an appointment. I got there and I was, at that time, just Corona started. So it was really difficult to get in. And um, people were not wearing the mouth mask at the time because we didn't know what Corona was. And uh, it was just the first week that it happened in, in Belgium. So I went in and I spoke with the people in the, in the waiting area. And I had to wait for two hours because the doctor is really well known in Belgium. And I spoke with the people and I started to cry before I went in. Because all the people that were there had the same story like me. And I, was, I felt like I'm on the place where I have to be. Um, I went in, doctor tested me, I explained everything. He took all the tests, blood work, uh, everything. And he said, Axel, I'm very sorry to tell you this, but I'm 99% sure that you have uh, chronic Lyme disease because it's a Lyme literate doctor. And uh, I said, okay, no problem. Uh, let's see what we can do. And one month later, I had to go back, got all the results. And he was like, yeah, me, I'm a toy. So that was it. Axel, a few follow-ups on this, because there's a couple of things I want to discuss with you. The first is your doctor that diagnosed you, this doctor referred to you by your friend from Instagram, was an eyelids doctor, right? The International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Now, yes. eyelids doctors specialize, obviously, in Lyme disease and treating Lyme disease that's chronic Lyme and late-stage Lyme. There's been a lot of controversy, especially lately in the last week in the news. We're constantly getting emails and alerts about Lyme disease where the, the debate over chronic Lyme is intensifying between eyelids doctors and some other doctors. So although the CDC and the, you know, the federal government in the United States, and I think the world now recognizes what they call post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, which is what we call chronic Lyme, essentially, they're arguing whether or not it's really persistent infection or a persistent you know, uh, 
Borrelia, in your case, Miyamoto infection, or if some sort of immune dysfunction as a result of Lyme disease or something else altogether, right? So I wonder if the strong opinions that are out there, I mean, I have an article up in front of me right now, why doctors can't agree about chronic Lyme disease. And there are some really strong-minded doctors who are saying, yes, some people don't get better after Lyme disease. However, it's not due to infection anymore. So do you think these views just complicated your diagnosis and prolonged your diagnosis because it wasn't it wasn't something that was widely accepted about this severity of illness due to Lyme disease. Yeah, um, when I spoke with some people about Lyme disease, they were like, "Yeah, you can be sick of it for one month, and of course, then you're fixed. And if you have some symptoms afterwards, it will probably be something else." It was not something like, "Okay, you can have chronic Lyme and you can be really sick for a very long time." Um, so it, I, it was only when I saw my first time my, my Lyme doctor that I found out it, it could be in your system for the rest of your life and uh, could, could damage a lot of uh, organs. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's uh, in Belgium as well. It's really difficult to, to explain this to a lot of people because we have uh, the wrong uh, literature about it. Uh, there, is, there is like one side is saying uh, chronic Lyme is, is, is true. There are people that are really sick and it's because of the Lyme disease. And the other side is saying, no, this is just uh, doctors that want to gain money on side of people with Lyme. And I think what compounds is problem, and you experienced this in your, in your journey as well, this article, Why Doctors Can't Agree About Chronic Lyme Disease, references a study that a doctor performed in a patient of chronic Lyme patients. And I think it was something like 71% of the participants in the study did not test positive for Lyme disease. And therefore the doctor said, people think they have chronic Lyme, they don't have a persistent infection and it's not Lyme disease. And you got tested twice before you finally got your positive diagnosis. So I think that the inadequate or poor testing also confuses people and results in a lot of confusion about, well, can you have Lyme disease if you tested negative twice? Or can you still have an active infection after treatment if you're testing negative? But we know now that these tests aren't very accurate. So I think that played a role in your journey as well which prolonged and delayed your diagnosis ultimately by an eyelids doctor. Do you agree? 100%. So another interesting point of uh, discussion that you and Rich had was this whole, you were exercising and you would just crash. You could not do anything without having this crash, fall asleep and, and just really be, be triggered with your symptoms. But the cortisol really helped you temporarily before your diagnosis, right? And, and I, think cortisol is a double-edged sword. And I want to get your opinion on this as, as an athlete and as somebody who has used it, because we know cortisol helps you repair tissue. It helps you recover from exercise. It's something that naturally happens in people in a normal way. But when you're sick with Lyme disease, many of us are stuck in fight or flight. Our nervous systems become dysregulated, uh, in, which results in anxiety and stress and high levels of stress. That constant anxiety all the time when you got sick but we do know that cortisol, it curbs the functions that would be non-essential or harmful in a fight or flight situation. So it's almost like cortisol encourages fight or flight and adds to your stress level. But on the other hand, it allowed you to exercise, which gives you endorphins to counter that, right? So that's where I see like this sort of, there's this, this competitive uh, advantage for, for cortisol, where in one way it's helping you recover from exercise and helping you get the, the, the happy chemicals from exercise but it's also pushing you more into a state of fight or flight. So what are your views on cortisol and how you used it and if it was helpful or, or harmful in your journey? 
Uh, it was very helpful at the energy side of things because the moment I started taking it, I was feeling much more energetic and I could uh, perform again business-wise um, and yeah, could do some sports again. But my button was always on, so I could uh, my sleeping was not so well. But I was thinking, yeah, maybe this is a solution, and I can I can uh, I can fight back from where I come from, and I can I can go back to the normal level of energy. But of course, yeah, my button was always on and never off. And yeah, it was only off when I stopped taking it. So it allowed you to have a better quality of life and improve your symptoms. But behind the scenes, it was wreaking havoc by leaving your button always on and your stress level was through the roof, which probably led to your crash that you had on vacation with your girlfriend later on, it sounds like, in my opinion. I mean, is that, is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, also agree with that 100%. So talk to us about Borrelia miyamotai, because we know that, you know, not to get too technical for our listeners, but Borrelia burgdorferi is what we generally associate as being Lyme disease, right? Especially here in the United States. And Borrelia miyamotai is a different strain of Lyme disease. So it's something that's different, you know, just to kind of share with our listeners, you know, we know that was really only discovered 20 years ago in Japan, and that right now that the standard test for Lyme disease will not detect it. So if you didn't go to an eyelids doctor and you continue to see your other doctors. Do you think you ever would have tested positive for Lyme disease? Because likely those standard Lyme tests you were getting in your initial set of doctors weren't even looking for Borrelia miyamotai because they don't, they don't test for that. Right. So that's a whole nother thing that people don't even think about. True. The first time I went to my special Lyme doctor, he tested me on all these kind of different strains and on also on, on biomarkers that could tell me that I have, was running around with uh, chronic disease. It was the first one who told me about uh, CK values of uh, CD75, uh, all these kind of things. And uh, I went to look it up. I, I did some Google work. I bought me all the, these kind of Lyme books. And uh, because the, it was only then that I knew that I had uh, probably Lyme disease. And I did all my, my, um, my reading and my, my looking it up in the month prior to seeing the doctor uh, for the second time when I got my diagnosis. And yeah, I was seeing on the paper, he, he put the paper in front of me, positive Miyamotoi and all these kind of biomarkers. And I immediately accepted and understood what I was dealing with. At times you couldn't even communicate, you said, right? You, you, your brain didn't work, you had brain fog and you had to rely on your friends to help you. But yet, despite that, when you had moments of clarity, you were researching, you were learning about the disease so you can make informed decisions as a patient based on the results you were getting from your blood work, based on how you were feeling to partner with your doctors. And that was a really, really powerful Lyme hack that I know Rich and I still both remember because it was a really important Lyme hack. So do you think that if it weren't for all of your research and reading these books and understanding this disease at a deep level, that you would be where you are now with your health? I looked at myself as a patient that I would treat if I was a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I, I was thinking, of course, when I know everything about it, when I read, when I read all the books, when I see all the videos, when I know all about it, how all these markers are working, because I was also uh, working with food, um, I, I could I could think more biochemically, a little bit more than a regular person. So, and then I just put a piece of paper. If I was the patient, what I if 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 if, if I was a doctor and you were my patient and it was me, what would you do? And I looked at it that way, and that was much more uh, easy for me. So you are now just getting your diagnosis of Borrelia miyamotai. You just had your really bad crash on your skiing trip with your girlfriend, and you have your diagnosis. So what are your next steps with your with your now new Lyme literate eyelids doctor? 
Um, so he put me, of course, on the standard uh, IV protocol. I had three different kind of antibiotics uh, together with the whole protocol of supplements. And it was the first time uh, I, I experienced the Herxheimer reaction um, three weeks in. Uh, we did this for six weeks and then it would be followed by a disulfiram protocol. And I thought back in the day, because I knew a bit about Lyme disease, that I would be healed after these protocols, but this, this wasn't true. And walk us through how you felt at the end of that six-week window. You know, were you feeling any better or were you even worse because of the Herxheimer reactions that you described? It was the worst I was ever been. So you felt the worst you ever were at the end of that six weeks with the antibiotic cocktail? Yeah. Now, what was your Lyme litter eyelids doctor telling you? Was he saying that this is normal because you have to feel worse before you feel better? Yeah, it was the first time that uh, I went to him. Uh, it was in three weeks of the treatment. So we had to do it six weeks. After three weeks, I was going to see him uh, to explain how I was feeling. And I said to him, like, I'm feeling really shit. And he explained, you have Herxheimer reactions. Your body needs to go to the breakdown system to get all these toxins out of your body. Um, then I, I, I knew that it was a possibility because I did all the studying. Um, but of course, it was so uh, tough. To, to bury it, I was like, okay, uh, we got to go through it. And after these six weeks, I was swollen. I think I was 10 kilos more heavy because my liver was fully fattened and I was really, really, really tough time. My, my body was fully swollen. Um, and he, he took, he gave me some two weeks of recovery. He was like, okay, now you need to recover for two weeks. We give you all the uh, supplements to take the toxins out. So Axel, did you take a break at the end of the six weeks or in the middle of the six weeks? At the end, because I knew I knew I was uh, I was getting more sick, but this would help me eventually to become healthy again. So I was fully focused, even though I'm really sick. I got to go through this. Um, this can take me two weeks. This can take me two months, but I got to go through it to become healthy again. And when you did go off the six weeks of treatment and you started the, the detox regimen, you said you developed a fatty liver, that you were swollen, and that you had all these toxins in you from the die-off, right, in the Herx. Do you recall what these supplements were and what you were using to help detox your body and flush these toxins out? I was using curcumin, lactoferrin. Yeah, I was using uh, curcumin, choline. Uh, Lactoferrin, uh, probiotics, uh, Myers cocktails, um, glutathione, uh, ozone therapy as well. Um, yeah, celery juice, all these kind of things. Was there any one in particular that you felt was extremely helpful for you personally in feeling better from this, you know, detoxification process and, re and, and removing these toxins? So, for example, was the glutathione really helpful where you felt? better pretty quickly or was there anything like that that you can share with our audience um the myers cocktail with glutathione because i was having a lot of uh muscle pain the magnesium was helping me in this from the myers cocktail and the detoxification together with uh infrared saunas i still do them four times a week um because this really feels i could really feel the toxins flushing out when i do this um this is really helpful for me any tips for our listeners that want to do an infrared sauna? Because a lot of people are heat intolerant and are afraid to do it. A lot of people don't know that they need to, you know, stay hydrated afterwards and they can feel worse because of that. 
And also, you know, there is such a thing as going too hard in and so on as well. So any, any recommendations or advice based on your experience to share with our listeners pertaining to a sauna? Of course, you have to be hydrated before you start. And you also have to take binders because all the toxins that, uh, that come out of your body need to, need to flush out. So I always took uh, some binders before I went in uh, and when I went out as well. So I had uh, always flushing out all these toxins. Um, and always, I, also for me, sometimes I have to go lower with the temperature than I want because uh, now I'm always in high temperature because I feel fit again. But uh, I was uh, in, the, in the start, I was not even sweating. It was just a bit the heat and I was building it up slowly. And this is also what I learned during my Lyme journey that everything what you do, supplements, always start slowly and feel how your body is responding to this. I think it's a really powerful tip to start slowly and work your way up. And you said you weren't even sweating at first. You were just doing it with minimal heat and for a short period of time. And you worked up to being able to sweat in a higher temperature, correct? I, I, was, coming, I was coming from doing nothing, laying in my bed. If, if, I know if, if I go now 30 minutes in the sauna at, uh, at a very high heat, it would wreck my body. So, but if I would do nothing, I would stay the same. So I have to do something. And I started with the 500 meter walk. Uh, with a 10-minute sauna that was almost cold, you know. So I started very slowly, and I was thinking, okay, if I don't feel worse tomorrow because I can fall back, then I'll do it a little bit more. And that's the way I started building up. Axel, do you recall binders you were using before going into the sauna? Uh, chlorella. And um, now I take the um, uh, bioactive binder as well with charcoal. Did you have any any reactions or responses to bioactive binders or or charcoal? Because some people, you know, has, prefer one over the other or have some sort of response. Like Rich, for example, can't take chlorella because it just really messes up his stomach. So were were they affecting you in any way, or were both those binders pretty gentle for you? No, pretty gentle. Everything was for binders. I can take my gut health was also. Um, really good after uh, after um, my treatments because normally with antibiotics and so on the gut health is really difficult but i was always looking into my food and i was eating really clean to see uh, my gut was uh, healing well and my gut is in a very good state i would say even though i have the chronic line so yeah i can i can take a lot of a lot of pills without feeling really sick so you mentioned that you do a short walk, Axel. So you'd walk around shortly just to do a little bit, not be stuck in bed and bed bound and see how you feel the next day. How did you start to progressively increase your movement and your exercise so you can do more and more and more? You know, what was that approach and what was that strategy in comparison to how you were exercising before? That was really difficult for me because I, I always, when I, was, when I was more on the athlete side, I was always monitoring myself. I was measuring my heart rate, looking how much time I was on the cycle. I was cycling. And now I was the first time on the, I put it my, my, my cycling shorts on and I went on the, on the gym bike and I was on three minutes and I was feeling miserable. And I was like, okay, I go for five minutes. And after four minutes, I had to stop because I was throwing up. And I was like, it's, it's bad to take the, the, to look at the time, how much time I'm cycling. Just go with the flow, feel what you can do. And the day after I went on again without, without the clock. And I was on for much more long because I put the clock on, but not inside the room. And I was feeling, hey, maybe I have to let all these things go, not measure my heart rate, just go what feels right. And we'll see where we, where we go. And after a while, I was cycling for 30 minutes without feeling, feeling shitty. And I was like, hey, uh, let's start monitoring again. 
And the day I started monitoring again, I was feeling more shit because I was, um, I was monitoring myself and I was looking at my heart rate and I was like, shit, I'm in bad shape. And I was getting more stressed and I was like, I have to pedal a little bit harder. And I was getting more and more stress on my body and I was feeling more shit. So I throw everything out and I was just going with the flow. And since I started doing that also business-wise, <laughs> everything started to go much more how I wanted because my body is telling me what I can and what I can't. And the moment I start listening to it and acting to that, not saying, okay, I have to be a bit more tough, then I will always, the next day will be sick. So I have to listen to what my body is telling me. And that's with that state of mind, I took that for about a year. I decided to, whatever people say, whatever people think, I was going to do what I was feeling that I can do. And I was, uh, if I have to go to the restaurant in the evening and it was not possible, I just said no, because my body was telling me it's no. Sometimes somebody was telling me you can go out and you, you can go party until three in the morning if it would be possible. But it was telling me all these signals and I was listening to it. And since I started doing that, knowing with all that I know from Lyme disease, I became healthy again. So Axel, I think it's a really important point that you just described that you shouldn't be letting a time clock tell you what to do or people in your life tell you what to do, but rather listen to your body and let your body guide how far you push yourself on a given day, right? So by not having that stress of people influencing you or a time clock influencing you, you're not getting let down, you're not getting frustrated, and you're not putting emotional stress on your body, which is going to hinder your healing. So that's a really good piece of advice there. So Axel, walk us through now, after this whole detox period is done, you mentioned after that you were going to use disulfiram, right? And disulfiram, we know, is a pretty pretty powerful treatment, but also has some risks like neuropathy and other things like that, and also some psychological side effects. So walk us through your experience about starting disulfiram and how it worked for you. Um, I started very low. It was um, 12 and a half milligrams in the morning, 12 and a half in the evening. And then I build up to 25 and I would always double it until I was on 250 milligrams a day. That was, that was a strategy. Um, and at 50 milligrams in the morning and in the evening, I started to get some Herxheimer reactions. And my doctor explained to me that if the moment you feel your Herxheimer will, will come, stop immediately, let it, let it, let it happen, let, let be sick for three or four days, feel a bit better and then start again slowly. So we, we would, we would not get the strategy to always build up and feel more, more sick. We were the strategy like, okay, I still have my business to run because I was still working uh, full time. And I have to like, feel like which is the level I, ca I can keep going. And um, so I was, I, was, I was on 50 milligrams um, and I got one time a really bad Herx. Uh, so I stopped for two weeks. I got a lot of detoxing and I built up again and I was too, I was too motivated, I think. And I went to 75, uh, uh, 57. And um, immediately I was really, 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 really sick for about three weeks. I had so much brain fog and so much uh, die off. Uh, the Herx was so bad that I had to stop everything. Also, I could not even uh, put my socks on. I was really three weeks again, fully bedridden. Uh, and I was also scared again from the uh, disulfiram. So um, yeah, we discussed to stop this treatment. Axel, looking back, do you feel that disulfiram was something you wish you didn't do or are there any positive effects of using disulfiram? I believe every time you feel sick, 
from a new treatment, it helped because every time a treatment makes you sick, you have a die off. So I, I believe all the different treatments took away a line in very different spots. I believe the Disulfiram helped me with my neurological problems because I was really having neurological problems during it. And afterwards, I was feeling much more better neurologically. So I believe it, it helped me. Yeah. So when you stopped at Isulfiram, Axel, you actually were feeling better neurologically speaking with brain fog and some of your neurological symptoms. Yeah, yeah, true. So uh, we decided to go, okay, uh, first we do the detoxing again. And then we're going to start with the uh, Samento Banderol Cumana protocol. Um, and I got exactly the same response on this. I, I immediately had really bad days. Um, so I took it really slow. I took one drop of each, uh, one day off, two drops of each, one day off, or a bad day, three days off to start again. So until I was on 20 drops of everything and I got again a really bad Herx. Um, so I stopped with that as well. Um, but I was always, during these treatments, I was always looking at my deto detoxification, that it was on point. But of course, when you have so much buildup, I was feeling this in my face. My face was swollen. My eyes were a bit fluffy. Then I knew I have to, like, I was going to a point, but my, my athlete brain was like, we have to keep going. We have to focus. The, the more you take, the better you will become in the future. So despite feeling so poorly and badly from these treatments, you knew because you were herxing, it was having a positive impact. So when you, let's talk about Cemento and Banderol. They're Nutrimedics, right? It's a Nutrimedics brand. And Cemento is really a version of Cat's Claw. And Cat's Claw is an herb that's really effective at killing Lyme bacteria and a lot of other microbes in your body. And the Banderol, on the other hand, is used for inflammation support to help you with the detoxification and the Herxheimer reaction. So they sort of complement each other pretty well. Did you find that the Banderol was helping you with inflammation and Herxing or that the Cemento was just so aggressive that you weren't seeing the decreased inflammation and Herxing through the Banderol? It was too aggressive for me. Um, the inflammation was still on a pretty high level, but uh, yeah, it was too heavy for me. So I had to stop this after a while. And about how long, Axel, were you on the Cemento and Banderol for? I would say three months. Three months. Okay. And give us time context. So where are we now? So today, obviously, you are 28 years old. You got diagnosed when you were 26. When you went off the Cemento and Banderol, was this, you know, last year, six months ago? Where were we time-wise? This is, this is about one year ago. Okay. It's about today. I, we are, uh, I don't know when, when uh, you're going to put this out, but... Exactly one year ago today, I got a message on my uh, on my Facebook. I started uh, a trip to to Portugal to, to have uh, to have some some time off. Um, and yeah, since then I'm feeling much 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 more better. So let's talk about that because this is right after Cemento and Banderol. You said you got a Facebook message and then you took some time off. So what was his Facebook message? Let's talk about that. Um, so I was feeling I was feeling um, pretty okay. But I was not fully healed. And I was like, maybe I need to do something else work-wise as well. Maybe I need to uh, like think about my life, what I want, because this disease will be forever in my body. This will forever be have an impact on my, on my life. I know this for 100% sure. I cannot be an athlete anymore, but I can do sports on a high level, but not, not the way I thought it would ever be. I can do business, but I cannot work 80 hours a week. 
because then I will be very sick again in the future. So I had to rethink the whole uh, life. Uh, do I want children? Do I want to get, do, do I want children? I, I need to rethink everything. So um, I, I, I loaded up my van and I went on a road trip and the plan was to go three weeks. And uh, yeah, we were <laughs> almost nine months that uh, I was not at home. So, yeah. So you were living in Belgium and then, and cause I just, because we don't, I'm not too familiar with the geography there. So you left Belgium and where did you go? Give us some context. I, I, I went a bit South for the, yeah, I went a bit South for the good weather um, because yeah, that was always helpful. And I wanted to ride my bike again because in, in, in my whole timeline, I know when I'm riding my bike, I'm, I'm the most happy person in the world. So I took, I, I, I took my, uh, my father's Dakar bike. I put it in the bus. I was like, okay, we're going to start riding again. And I went to ride 30 minutes. I came home. I had fully headache. I, I could not. I was two days in the bed, but I was so happy. And yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I was feeling really well. So, okay, let's go for an hour. Okay, two days off. Let's go for two hours. And after three months, I was riding again six hours a day. Uh, of course, with some with some with some uh, days off in between, but I was so happy and I, I knew I wanted to go back to racing cars or bikes, uh, as long as it has an engine and 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 some noise, that it would make me happy. Because when I have high adrenaline, I'm happy. And um, yeah, since then I'm I'm, I'm back in competition, just uh, amateur wise, but yeah, it's going, so I'm happy. So actually, let's talk about that. It sounds like you were really, again, reading your body, right? Doing what you can do and gradually building up over a nine-month period that you started a year ago when you did this move south. So, but I think an important part of what you just described was you were taking days off after going through an aggressive riding day. And we've learned from some of the leading Lyme doctors, like local doctor, Dr. Biroscano here back in the, in the 70s, who was treating chronic Lyme cases. He told us in chronic Lyme disease, you, you cannot go aggressively or even training pretty, you know, training moderately and do it every day because of the way Lyme disease interacts in the body. You have to take days off. And his recommendation was exactly what you said. Do a day of exercise, take two days off. Exercise, take two days off. So do you think that your body was just giving you the signals that is backed by the science and Lyme literate doctors that is needed in order to be able to get over the hump of Lyme disease and be able to make progress in improving your exercise regimen? Yeah. Um, I, I could treat my body, uh, really well. I, when I wake up in the morning and I have some, some pains here and there, I know mm, maybe today will be not today. And then I do some small exercises. I do, uh, 10 sit-ups. And if I'm out of breath, I know today is not today. Today we're going to rest. And if I do 10, 10 sit-ups and I'm like, yeah, I drink a coffee and we go, then I know it's just, it's, it's just a little hiccup along the way, but it will, it will be fine. And like this, I, I read my body and I know what I can do. Were you doing or are you doing any treatments now that you took this trip down south? You're relaxing. You're starting to build up your, your riding you know, career again. Are you doing anything to treat beyond just building up you know, a clean diet, good sleep, you know, building your exercise up moderately? Were you on any, any sort of herbs or pharmaceuticals to help with the Lyme disease during this time? I was mainly focused on getting the toxins out because also exercising is building up toxins in your body. The lactic acid needs to go out. So uh, I was doing a lot of um, 
ice baths. So I had I was with a friend there, and we went almost every evening in the sauna. Um, we, we we took some ice baths. I was focusing on uh, proper hydration. This means with magnesium, with all these kind of things that my body would not drain itself. I was focusing on very clean food, um, glutathione and some binders yeah, fully on the toxins because my sweat was, um, I, I knew my body was is still full and now it's much more or less like I had the iron taste on my tongue. My, my, my sweat was smelling like, like chemical stuff. And I was like, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to take everything natural. I'm going to, I start, I start drinking less, uh, less shitty, uh, sodas. I was just drinking water. I was just nourishing my body. Like, uh, like I knew I, I was listening to it. Like I knew this is what I have to give it. And I was listening to it. And since then I'm, I'm much more better. So we talked about the role of the sauna, but you mentioned the ice baths as well. So Axel, talk to us about the role ice baths played because they're sort of the opposite of a sauna, right? And what value that had in helping you in your recovery. I feel the sauna is relaxing my muscles and, um, and getting the toxins out, but I feel the um, cold uh, therapy is, is getting my body moving. Uh, with the shock it gives, uh, with with the cold, your body is not uh, used to this. In the heat, when it's sunny, everybody takes his shirt off and he's relaxing. But when it's cold, everybody goes inside the house and they put a jacket on. Everybody's running away from it. And um, what what it does for a boost of of not confidence because I'm confident enough, I think. But the the, the feeling like hey. If, it's like, it's like a shot of adrenaline that they give me and it makes me happy and it makes me feel good. So I keep doing it. So this was a year ago you moved and you started this whole new process and you said that it was about a nine month window, which brings us to about three months ago. So did something change three months ago or are you still on this trajectory of just building everything up and taking it easy and you're still in the same current location that you were in when you traveled down south? Of course, I had to, um, my business was all uh, mainly online, so I could uh, work from wherever I was in the world, uh, actually. But um, something came along to work again more in, um, in Belgium. And uh, I was like, yeah, actually, I'm, this is, I see this as a test. I see this as if I can do this. It is, I'm actually, it is a Saturday and I'm at work now. So um, I'm working six days out of seven and I do 10 to 12 hours a day. And actually, I'm feeling pretty well. So um, I see this as a test. If I can perform in this, I can do more in the future. And um, I put it out some goals uh, a year ago before I, I, I went. When I was in Portugal, I, I wrote everything in a little book. It's called My Little Bible. Everything is inside for, uh, for my Lyme disease, all my, my, my future of, of, of what I think my life would be is written down. And uh, I wrote down some short-term and long-term goals. And with this in mind, I just flow through life and see where I will come. So Axel, for context, and again, for our listeners, you were, you thought you were going to die. You were bedbound at various stages of your healing. And today, literally as we speak, you're at work. You're working six days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day, correct? That's how much you've improved in your Lyme journey. Yeah, 100%. I, I was... I was uh, scared to lose my life uh, two years ago. And today I'm thinking, uh, actually, I'm going to tell you something else. In about six days, 
Um, I'm running a 24 hour car race. Uh, that was a little childhood dream of mine. And um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do it. I decided to, they asked me if I wanted to drive and I said, of course, it's a childhood dream. And they asked me uh, 100 days before the start. And uh, I was like, I'm gonna do everything every day. I'm gonna gain every day 1% with the knowledge I have and I will be on the starting line and I will go for it. And we are one week away from the start and yeah, we're just gonna see what it, what it brings. And I, I have some good, uh, some good feeling with it. I mean, what a transformation. Well, that, that's amazing. And my fa- I'm stepping on Rich's toes a little bit here with his part of the journey, but I have one final question before Rich picks up. You did mention your supplement company, 4Gold. Am I saying that right? It's F-O-R, 4Gold. Is that the yeah. name of it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So no, it's a four. It's a letter. It's... Oh, the number four and then the word gold. Yeah. G-O-L-D. Four, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So talk to us about four gold, because obviously being, you know, going through this Lyme journey, you've learned what supplements have helped you the most. So is four gold something you built out of what you learned from your Lyme experience and something that can help other people in the Lyme community? I want to learn more about the supplement company. It, it was it was not built to help uh, people with Lyme disease, but it was uh, intentionally built to get the most high quality supplements on the market because we know it was full of shit. Um, and uh, especially for people with uh, gut health problems like me and Brent, Brent has his Crohn's disease and I had my Lyme disease, but I didn't know it. I just had really bad gut health. We decided to make very clean um, and, and good products. Um, what we have now, we have some patent. Uh, patented products on, uh, on on gut health and on uh, like or, like for example our nutrigenomic recovery that that uh, that can really change uh, your way in the recovery and and uh, gut health and it's really working well. It also helped me in uh, in my uh, recovery process. So Axel, why don't you talk to us about um, the part of the uh, transformation you had to make as an athlete. We, we talked a little bit about the advantages that athletes have when they go on this journey because they understand the importance of teams and they're very good at building teams. But there are the downsides to being an athlete going through this uh, journey. And, and one, of the, um, one of the downsides is that you were a part of this suck it up culture where you just sort of monitored everything and pushed further and monitored and pushed further. And you had to learn how to get away from the suck it up culture and move to the listen to your body culture or listen to the body realities. Talk to us about that part of your transformation. Um, Of course, going with my family has always been uh, very hard on themselves. My father was, uh, he's a professional uh, businessman. Uh, He he did triathlon. He was also really good at riding motocross. Um, So he was always hard on himself. He built a company with a lot of people. Uh, yeah, he, he was never at home. He was always working full gas. And he was trying to do the social life as well. But, you know, it, it's difficult. My brother was really a, a suck it up person. He was not talking emotions. He was only focusing on his job. And it was riding as fast as he can with the bike. So if I then came with some, some things like, yeah, I have pain here or a pain there. They were like, just get along with it. It will be fine in some, in some days. Uh, yeah, of course, it was not like this, but uh, yeah, it was difficult. Right. So you, you also <laughs> had to change your relationship with exercise. <clears throat> Excuse me. As an athlete, you were always exercising aggressively, right? And we talked a little bit about the inverted U. And then you pivoted back and you had a more healthy relationship with exercise. 
and that more healthy relationship exercise served you and you were listening to your body. And if your body said, don't do it, you didn't do it. If your body said, okay, you should do more, you did more, but you're doing your exercise to serve you so that you would move and you would detox and you would be in a healthy, in a healthy place. So talk to us about how that part of the transformation was important for your healing. Uh, of course, before I had climb, I was running 30 kilometers. I was uh, doing 200 kilometers on a bicycle. Not so much, but I was doing this. And um, I know even when I was feeling bad, it would serve me in the future that I was getting um, getting more fit. But now um, everything my body is telling me uh, is serving me. And I have to listen to that. And if... If I decide mentally I'm going to run 10K today and my body is telling me no and I'm going to do the 10K, I will be sick for three weeks. So my body is telling me what I want, what I, what I, what I need to know. I just need to listen to it. And it has some, it's a very silent communication, but if I don't listen to it, uh, I will always uh, have the consequences. Well, and, and I, I do I do want to challenge you on that because I'm not sure that the communication is so silent, right? Our body is always talking to our to our subconscious uh, mind. Our subconscious mind is always talking with our cognitive brain. And then our cognitive brain is talking again with our subconscious mind and talking to the body, right? There is this communication. And really the question is, are we going to join the communication? Are we going to participate in the communication? Are we just going to ignore what's going on and do either what a monitor is telling us to do or doing what, you know, what, what our adrenaline rush wants us to do? And, and, and that's really the key, right? You, you just sort of started to participate in the conversation. I was always really stressed um, at work. I was waking up at 5.30, drinking a coffee, and I just went with it. And then you never have a time to listen. Um, it was only when my um, my doctor said you need to try meditation because then it's the only time you can listen to what your body is telling you that I was really listening. And it was when I was feeling the rest that I could feel my body recovering. And it's only in a state of really much relaxation when my body can recover. Uh, before, when I was sleeping, I was feeling I was feeling good the next day. It's now it's only when I'm sleeping really high quality that I'm feeling good. So I need to look for the really high quality sleep. And I can only do this with doing meditation and breath work and 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 saunas. And and when I do this, I know the next day will be perfect. So yeah, it's it, it's just a process of. First, you ignore it because you think like, hey, man, get along. Uh, you, you can do it. But your body is always telling you no. So you have to listen. And then you will, you will understand your body more and more. Axel, one of the things that was really clear about the early part of our conversation is that you were a, an adrenaline junkie. You were constantly engaging in behaviors and activities that would give you an adrenaline rush. And you were doing that all the time, right? That's who you were. That was your life. That's what you were doing, even though it was causing you to suffer broken bones and broken necks and having surgeries and all that kind of stuff, right? And then you came to a place where now you started to sit still. You were meditating, you were, you were, you were resting, you were sleeping, but you were now bringing the adrenaline piece of this into your life in a healthy way in a balanced way, you're, you're going out and you are now engaging in activities that are giving you a rush, but it's not the constant place where you are uh, existing. So talk about that part of your transformation, how, how the adrenaline elements became a, a positive element that allowed you to have some enjoyment, but at the same time, most of your life 
was in a meditative or in a quiet space where you were able to listen to yourself and follow your body to a place where you could be physically helpful? Uh, I know that I need some adrenaline to be to be to be happy and to have some goals in the future to stay mentally uh, sane. So um, what? In the beginning, I was I was always chasing this adrenaline. I was doing so much of crazy shit to 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 get this kind of rush, but it always crashes really fast. So you always have to replace it. Of course, I don't drink and smoke, but I was I, and I don't do drugs. But I was always chasing something adrenaline side. Um, the moment I sit still, I was feeling the rest coming over me. And in the beginning, it took me only the rest. So it was only meditation, only uh, staying calm because it was making me so happy on the inside that I knew that I can, all, I can also be happy with nothing, with, with no, no fancy things, with, with not riding a car, uh, racing uh, bikes, uh, all these kind of stuff. Um, but then I was doing too much of this kind of stuff. I was doing too much of relaxation. I also need a bit of action and motivation to go to work and go to all these regular kind of things so i implemented it for a little bit and this is working for me really well so, so actually i think one of the really important takeaways here one of the contrasts between the beginning of this podcast and your early life and now the life that you're leading now is you're setting proper boundaries right you're bringing balance to your life right? your early life you were recklessly driving through the forest on your bike and you weren't taking any precautions to protect yourself from tick bites or 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 tick diseases you were you were you were driving driving your motocross bike all the time and you were gaining all this adrenaline rush but you were crashing and getting hurt and you were having surgeries and now we have a very different axle right he is someone who is goal oriented he is somebody who sets targets for himself he's someone who understands that with balance, he can have these adrenaline rushes or these activities that cause him to gain enjoyment. But at the same time, he also is setting proper safety precautions in place for himself so that he's not getting hurt and he's not putting himself in a position where he's he's suffering while chasing this 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 drug. So I think that's a perfect place to, to transition to the end of the podcast, which is as a child, you're running around in the forest and getting bitten by ticks. Uh, and you didn't take any precautions. As a child, you were engaging in all kinds of reckless activities that were causing you to suffer injuries. And now you're not. You're now putting proper parameters in place so that you can have a healthy relationship with these activities. Let's talk about having a healthy relationship with ticks and, 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 and activities where you can come in contact with ticks. So if God forbid, one of the people who were so good to you during this, during this journey, one of your best friends, for example, who are now part of your four gold uh, business. If one of them came into this, into the room that you're sitting in right after this podcast and he had to take biting him, what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? First of all, I would be really happy if they ask my, uh, my help um, because that's the first thing. Um, and I would uh, say to them, immediately go to your doctor with the tick, uh, we take it off. Uh, we send the tick in to see if it has any infections and we take some blood work and you start immediately with 21 days of doxycycline to make sure uh, if there is an infection that you will be uh, fast on it. Uh, it doesn't hurt your body uh, that bad to take 21 days of doxycycline uh, just as a precaution than if you get Lyme disease afterwards. That's what I would uh, do. And I also say that because a lot of people uh, in Belgium, uh, 
text me through Instagram or Facebook that know that I have chronic Lyme and they are scared that they see a tick and they text me and they are like fully, uh, oh no, I will get sick like you and I cannot do anything in, in, in three months and I will, I, will, I will die. And I said, no, it's not that bad, but uh, we, will, uh, we will first see how far uh, it, will, it, it will come. And uh, yeah, but always, always I hear the same story that uh, they went to their doctor the doctor said, ah, don't worry about it. There is nothing wrong with the tick bite. If you don't see the red uh, circle, I will give you four days or seven days of uh, antibiotics and you will be fine. And then they call me. Uh, yeah, but I'm not sure. And then I say, call your doctor or call my doctor, the one that helped me. He will immediately give you 21 days because he knows how uh, dangerous uh, Lyme can be and you will be fine. So Axel Rollins, I can't thank you enough and the folks over at Four Gold for uh, sacrificing some of your time with us this morning to share your really great story with the folks here at the Thick Bootcamp podcast. No problem. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Axel Rollins. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Axel, please visit him on Instagram at Axel Rolands. That's A-X-E-L-R-O-E-L-A-N-T-S. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We are you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.